0: be looking like we're sycophants here, Dan, even though we probably agree with virtually everything you said. Um, you mentioned John Stuart Mill. One of our heroes at CIS is the, the great British um, 19th century liberal. And John Stuart Mill was famous for many great quotes, including he who knows only his own argument knows little of that. Uh, so bearing that in mind, uh, Only when you know the strengths of your opponent's arguments do you realise your own weaknesses. So with that in mind, let me ask you something here. You talk about uh, identity politics and you couch it in terms of uh, individual freedom, free speech. Uh, But for many others, uh, they will see your position as the erosion of hard-fought anti-discrimination laws protecting women and gays, the disabled, indigenous Australians, among others. How do you respond to those concerns? I think John put it very well in the introduction,
1: right? The the liberal ideal was always, certainly in, in John Stuart Mill's time, and up until very recently, was that we should all be treated the same. And at some point in the last 30 years, the broad mass of the left, instead of campaigning for everyone to be treated the same, started campaigning for everyone to be treated differently for people to be given uh, either social or educational or, or indeed legal privileges, to be treated differently under the law on the basis of belonging to some imagined victim group. And I think where they're coming from, when you say, you know understand the other side's argument, is they're not really interested in uh, equality, let alone freedom for individuals. They, they see the world as a pyramid of power and everything is defined by where you are in that hierarchy. So I, I, quite recently, I was in, um, uh, in, the, in California in a, in a small um, town where they'd recreated uh, or restored a kind of a Spanish mission. And all of the wall text was written in terms of kind of implied racial and cultural uh, subjugation. And the fascinating thing was the first part was all about the the poor indigenous people being oppressed by these evil, wicked Spaniards. And then suddenly, when the English-speaking people arrived on the scene, the Spanish went from being the oppressors to being the victims. I mean, you know, Mm, they they would have presumably been the same people. But from one day to the next, their position was defined by something else. Now, that seems to me the most objectionable
0: and illiberal idea. Okay, but in the local contemporary context, we in Australia have had a big debate over the last few years about whether the government should change or amend uh, the Racial Discrimination Act, mm. which presently outlaws some speech that may offend, insult, humiliate or intimidate. Let me ask you a question that many of my uh, ABC colleagues, it's my other job, believe it or not, at the ABC's Radio National, they will all too often ask, and it's a good one, how do you best protect a person who has, because of their colour of their skin, has been refused a job, a room in a hotel or a service in a pub?
1: Well, the first point is, I think we're all agreed that incitement, which is an old common law offence, will remain an offence, right? Uh, And it is important to distinguish between an opinion and a call to violence, and and this is something which, which, on a common sense level, everyone understands, right? If if, if you say uh, there are too many Archenlanders in Narnia, that is an opinion. It's only when you say, right, let's go and throw a few of them into Winding Arrow River that you have crossed the line into incitement. Now... Is, let, let's stand back for a second and not see everything through the prism of imagined hierarchy and just ask the question in general, when is it all right to refuse service to someone? You know, uh, is it ever all right? Is it okay in some sense? I mean, I, I'd have thought a fairly mainstream position on this would be that if it's a utility, it's not all right. So you couldn't turn away a customer if you are a train or a an you know, electricity grid. But if you are a shopkeeper and you don't want to serve your ex-husband, uh, if you are a hotelier and you don't want children, you know, uh, if you're a restaurateur and you, you don't want pets or whatever, shouldn't the, the basic liberal presumption be that you are entitled to do what you want with your own property? And it is a peculiar pathology of our age that all of you, as I was saying that, were thinking about racial discrimination, rather than just asking the question from first principles, is it okay, Mm. on the basis of free contract and free association, to do what you want with your own property? Because if you're saying, which I think is is now the sort of default position, yes, it is okay, but what about if it's a racial... Well, then do you know what? You're back to treating people differently, wholly on the basis of ethnicity, because you're saying it's okay to, to, to turn someone a, a away from your hotel because you don't like him or, uh, you know, because you've heard bad things, but it's not okay the moment that, that it's because he's gay or whatever. Well, then, then you're saying he should be placed in a separate legal category. And I'm sorry to be kind of mm. mulish about this point, but once you do
0: that, you're tearing up the whole basis of, of an open society. Okay, how do you distinguish between your pushback against identity politics, which is, you know, I think most people in this room would fully agree... But how do you distinguish that from what we've seen in many parts of Europe, this rise of a reactionary, frankly, bigoted groups on the far right who try to shut down debate from their perspective? This nativism Mm. that has been driven in part by the rise of identity policy. How do we distinguish that?
1: Well, I mean, uh, J.S. Mill would have said you you defeat a bad idea with a better idea. Mm. right? And I, I can't think of many better ideas than Western liberalism. Uh, you, you have these authoritarian reactions when there is a problem with something. Mm. Uh, and that problem may be an economic downturn or it may be an identity politics issue. But let me, let me gently suggest that if you spend 30 years making everything about uh, racial or sexual or, or, or uh, other forms of uh, innate identity, it, it's pretty difficult for you then to turn around and say, well, we don't want white people doing this you would have been much better off not to have allowed anyone to do it and just to have gone down the road of saying we're all the same. It's a small thing, but I, I was reading an article it was either this morning or yesterday in The Australian about the, uh, a guy who would very much meet that description, the new president of Brazil, um, uh, Bolsonaro, uh, Bolsonaro uh, who is a... Just got elected last week. An authoritarian right-wing mm-hmm. populist, right? And, and there was a, an article in The Australian about why did he get elected. And and, and without any self-awareness, and this was a news piece, not an opinion column, the journalist said um, uh, he has this long record of being racist and sexist. In fact, he said only yesterday, we should treat everyone the same, we're all Brazilians and we shouldn't look at skin color. (laughs) And and, and, and that that to me was the the, 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 the left in one sentence, that they've morphed Mm. from, from what would have always been the radical or liberal ideal that treat everyone the same to now saying that it is racist to say that. You, you mentioned the... Ch- Sorry, Nick, you go. Yep.
2: You, you correctly identified, I think, this, this pathology that we see in our community. Uh, and, and, you know, I think it's telling what you say, that this is very recent, right? It's just come, accelerated very recently. Uh, but I think what we're, some, a lot of us are still grappling with is, is why? Why now? Why at this point? Is it, is it the growth in higher education? Is it this, as David Goodhart talks about, somewhere anywhere, you know, people who just don't are, are no longer able to identify themselves by a physical community or a country, or, or is it the rise of social media? I think it's partly the rise of social media. But
1: what is very striking... I mentioned Jonathan Haidt, uh, uh, that, who's written this book about the, uh, the phenomenon, and I, I saw him recently in New York and, and interviewed him about his, his thesis. And I said, is it a, is it a global phenomenon... And he said, no, it's an Anglosphere phenomenon. He, he, he unselfconsciously used that word. Um, Tony Abbott always used to say, my advisors keep telling me I'm not allowed to use that word.
2: <laughs> um,
1: but he said, it's an Anglosphere phenomenon. It began in, in the US, and then it spread to Canada, Australia, and the UK. Uh, uh, and I said, that's really interesting. Why? And he said, well, partly because the Anglosphere is a cultural continuum and ideas spread in the same language. He said, you know, the, the fact that this started in America is enough to make the French not do it, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, uh. But he said also because, and I thought this was really interesting, he said all higher education institutes, or at least all elite ones in, in English-speaking democracies, are ultimately modeled on Oxford and Cambridge. And it's these elite institutions that are the most subject to this, this illness. He said, you don't get it at technical colleges and you don't get it at at non-residential places because you cannot sustain this bizarre set of attitudes if you're still living at home and have to put up with the amused reaction of your parents or if you're (laughs) working and have to to, to explain it to your colleagues. You have to be lifted out of society uh, 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 and subjected to it. So I think a lot, to be honest, a lot of the short-term answers... I mean, I I was very, very interested and, and have actually personally made some... Changes in in how I'm, you know, how much time I'm turning my two-year-old out of doors and letting him forage, and you know, but uh, <laughs> but, I, but but in the short term, until until enough of us start start bringing up free-range children, and and, uh, and they become <laughs> the new university cohort. The one thing that I think, if, if he's right, that this is a, a product of of isolated uh, students in living on campus a lot of the responsibility lies with the presidents of the universities. They they need to make clear that there are some things that are unacceptable and that will have you excluded. And if they'd been taking that line earlier over the last three years, I don't think we'd have got to the place where you have meetings being smashed up and, and speakers being threatened and so on. Okay,
0: sticking with identity politics still, um, you made the point in your remarks that uh, these activists who are tearing down statues, whether it be Rhodes or Captain Cook, uh, they fail to put you know, events in their proper historical context. It's a point that John Howard, the former Prime Minister, made eloquently at CIS only a few months ago. But what about the Charlottesville drama in the summer of last year when President Trump appeared to make some sort of a moral equivalence between the left-wing protesters and some of those KKK people who wanted to um, defend the statues The left-wingers would say, well, those statues were inappropriate because they were built, these are statues of Confederate generals, they were built uh, after the Civil War, well into the uh, late 1890s as a way of intimidating African-Americans. Would you make an exception for those kind of statues?
1: I mean, of course, people are free to tear down statues. You know, when, uh, when Saddam fell in Iraq, people were, you know, his, his vast and trunkless legs of stone were left standing in every desert, right? It, it, people, people can pull down statues for lots of reasons. The, 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 think of all the, the Lenins uh, the, that are now piled up in warehouses uh, around Eastern Europe. So if people have fallen out of fashion or if there's been demographic change in a town or if people now realize that a statue was built uh, for uh, threatening or intimidating reasons... I, I, you know, I've, I've never been particularly a fan of Confederate statues. I, I, I wasn't a fan of the Confederate cause, and I'm not uh, <laughs> a, a, a fan of—I've never, you know—I'm not a fan of their battle flag, and I'm not a fan. But, but, was Donald Trump on firm ground drawing an equivalence between the Antifa and the far right? Yes, I think he was. I think he was. If you look at the way at the motives and the behaviour of the Antifa movement. Uh, the things that we find objectionable about fascists are generally also attributes that we can identify in Antifa. Why do we we not... I mean, I can't speak for every single one of you in this room. We all have our own reasons. I reckon that if you were to draw up a list of why we didn't like the Nazis, on almost every list would be they hated democracy, they categorized people by group rather than as individuals, they didn't want free speech, they uh, exulted in violence, uh, they didn't fundamentally believe in the institutions of a parliamentary society. Every one of those things applies to the people who are calling themselves anti-fascists. They've become an exact mirror of the thing that they say that they're against, down to their black shirts, down to their burn Israel placards, down to the
2: the street protests that they organise. So, Is is
1: there a moral equivalence? Yes, there absolutely is.
2: If it was only a few uh, fruitcakes at university... um, I think it would be a whole lot less concerning, but it seems to me it's seeped out uh, into the major corporations. I mean, I was in a major accountancy firm in this city the other day where they have all these protective rules, uh, and in the staff uh, canteen, there's a little room where you can go and play with Lego. That's what they do, to unwind.
0: Uh, Did you
2: you apply for a job in this wonderful place? It was great. Well, I immediately investigate getting Lego installed in Excellent. our place but but you know i mean once it gets to that level once once we get onto this corporate social responsibility uh, social license sort of yep. argument, we've lost it haven't we
1: yes and we should never we particularly you guys who run free market think tanks should never miss an opportunity to remind people of that that we are pro market we're not pro business mm-hmm. and pro market will often mean being... I mean, sometimes it will be the same as being pro-business, but often it will mean being anti-corporate, and particularly uh, against the interests of, uh, of the big companies that have learned how to game the system. So never miss an opportunity to remind business people that if they want to give money, that is fantastic, but it should be their money rather than money that they steal from shareholders in order to make themselves feel good about something by giving somebody else's money away, right? The, 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 the proper duty of a company board is to maximise profitability and then encourage everyone to be as generous as they can with their own money so it actually means something.
0: Yeah. Dan, uh, I have about Trump. Next Wednesday, lunch, our time, we have the US midterm elections. What's your sense of uh, Donald Trump's presidency two years in the White House?
1: I mean, I'm not, I, I, this will set me on the opposite side of a lot of people in this room, but I'm not a Trump supporter. I think he has character flaws that degrade the office. And I'm distressed by how many American conservatives have gone through somersaults in order to deny what's in front of their eyes. Mm-hmm. If you could have gone back in a time machine two years and said to to Republicans, two years from now, you're going to be saying that it was okay to pay off a porn star and then lie about it, (laughs) provided that there was no technical violation of campaign finance law. They'd have all thought you were mad. And yet look at, by little and little, how they've come to that point. It is the most extraordinary thing. You know, Fiscal conservatives who are now cheering a guy who has doubled the deficit and we'll put the debt up soon to over $20 trillion, right? Where is the Tea Party now, now that it's actually needed? At least Obama had the... I mean, it was a fairly crappy Keynesian excuse, but at he had the excuse that he was <laughs> pump-priming during a downturn. What excuse has Trump got to be spraying all this money around uh, during a uh, growth and, 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 and indebting the, the country further? Where, where are the, the religious conservatives when it, 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 with, with his not only his fornication, but his whole attitude, his inability to get through the day without fibbing? Where are the foreign policy hawks when he sucks up Uh, to Vladimir Putin. And where, above all, are the character conservatives? Where are the Straussian, decent conservatives Mm. who believed in Western civilization, who believed that courtesy and civility and restraint mattered in politics, and who are now cheering the most boorish, foul-mouthed, appalling uh, lack of self-control simply because they didn't like the other party? Well, do you know what? The other party isn't the alternative now.
0: Yes, but our conservative friends in America, Dan, will say, those who support Trump will say, look at what he does, not what he says, yes. and they'll look at uh, the tax cut policies, yep. deregulation, that has helped lead I to 3.7% unemployment, the lowest unemployment rate since 1969, the average annual economic growth is about 3.5%, Sure, it was 1.6% under Obama, he's uh, made some good conservative but judicial so, so how would you respond
1: to those well, concerns? I mean, of course, uh, you know, the, the extraordinary thing is how... Few are the people who are prepared to to, to show any even-handedness about this. So if you take what would strike me as a fairly uh, uncontentious statement, like, it's great that Donald Trump Trump has cut taxes, although it's a pity that he repeatedly lied about releasing his own tax return, or Mm. it's fantastic that he backed Brexit, but it's such a pity that he thinks it's okay to insult the family of a deceased American serviceman. My point is not that those particular... I mean, I happen to think those are true statements, but... Whether you think they're true or not, you never hear them, because everything is now so polarised mm. that you're either with him or... And, and, and what I find... First of all, I say, that the people who say, you know, it's only words and look at his actions, you know, I think when when the commander-in-chief is calling on officials to pursue partisan investigations, that isn't just words, you know. Uh, when the commander-in-chief is inciting people to, to thump his opponents, that isn't just words. That Those are... When you say those things in office, they, they, in my book, count as actions. And to to, to come back, as as American conservatives do, and say, oh, so what about Hillary? I mean, frankly, I'm not sure that was ever a particularly good counter-argument, because if somebody is unfit for office, then somebody else's unfitness for office is irrelevant. right? But even if you think that that was a valid argument, how is it a valid argument now? I mean, unless I've totally misunderstood how the US Constitution works, Hillary is not the alternative now. The alternative now is Mike Pence, who... By any definition, from a conservative perspective, is better. He's a better human being, and he's he's a proper conservative. He isn't somebody who came late and malevolently to the Republican Party.
2: I can understand, as a a very polite and decent uh, guy, uh, who doesn't, you know, you you don't send inappropriate tweets, uh, you you know, you've got a lovely family, and you you, you know, but you you may object to his style, Mm. but surely, as a Brexiteer, you're taking some pleasure in the way he's giving the progressive establishment a bloody nose. (laughs)
1: But but what I'm... I I mean, you'll have picked up, Nick, from what I said, that that, uh, tribalism is a very easy thing to slip into. It is our default setting. It's our Stone Age minds taking over. And this kind of, you know, bathing in the tears of your enemy thing is... uh, We've had to educate ourselves not to do that. Now, we all spot when the other side is playing this game. We all spot when they are overlooking grotesque moral failings because it happens to be someone from their tribe. If we are not capable of holding ourselves to a higher standard, then I think we are bad conservatives as well as being bad philosophers. You know it, it ought to be possible to say, "Yes, I agree with the fact that Donald Trump has deregulated, cut taxes, you know uh, taken a strong position on North Korea or whatever, but that doesn't mean that I overlook his faults and if you once you' sell that pass, once you say that it's 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 okay you know to have somebody who who behaves this way and, and fibs and, and and confuses his private interests with public office and all the rest of it on, on what grounds are you going to complain? about someone that you disagree with doing the same thing. I I, I say to my American conservative friends regularly now, what would a future Democrat president do that you would now be in a good position to criticise having remained silent when Trump did the same
0: thing? Yeah, I think it's an interesting point because throughout the 80s and the 90s uh, and the 2000s, our views were pretty much the orthodoxy in centre-eye politics. Mm -hmm. You know, Dan, Nick and I, the CIS, we broadly supported free markets, free trade, small government. Uh, Trump has repudiated a lot of that, hasn't he? Oh, yes. Mm. But to be fair to Trump, politically speaking, hasn't he resonated with a lot of people who have been displaced by uh, not just globalisation but technological change?
1: We'll we'll find out uh, next week, but no, I don't think he has. Uh, Remember that Trump got fewer votes than Mitt Romney, he got fewer votes than John McCain, and come to that, he got fewer votes than Hillary Clinton. I I, I don't believe that Trump is a big electoral asset to the Republican Party, and the the clearest proof of that is to compare his totals when he he was up for election uh, two years ago with the totals of the congressional and gubernatorial candidates who were standing in the same states on the same day. And with a couple of exceptions, they almost all outpolled him. So I've never really bought this idea that, uh, you know, yes, he may have reached some people who were previously not being reached, but he's turned off at least as many, and I think many more. Plus, this idea of the losers from globalization, I'm afraid I just don't really buy the idea. Trump has a classic double-think on this himself. He says... It's terrible, our jobs are all going overseas and so on. And then in the next tweet he says, unemployment hasn't been lower since the 1950s. Well, one or the other, Mr. (laughs) President, right? Uh, And actually it's the second one that's true. Um, Yes, some cheap jobs have been outsourced and many more, many more high-skilled, high-paid jobs have been created in their place as America has moved up the production chain by outsourcing the, the kind of cheapest end uh, of its domestic production. And that is a, a win-win situation. It's good for the other countries, it's good for the US. I mean, it, 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 th- this wouldn't have needed saying until very recently. The, the, the free trade works to the benefit of, of both participants. And when people say, and you, you get this a lot, and you've heard it as well, there's, there's a, a sort of a fashionable view among economists now that the rise in global living standards has been uneven, uh, the, the working classes in the West have been left behind. They haven't seen any improvement in their quality of life for 20 years. Oh, come on. I mean, a co- you know, Tom's the same age as me to, within a couple of days, as he just told <laughs> you. right? We can remember what life was like in 1998. I mean, yes, of course, the entry of hundreds of millions of new workers from ex-communist countries into the global yeah. workforce has reduced the value of labor relative to capital. But look at the improvements in living standards for everybody. I mean, in 1998, we had no cheap flights in the UK. EasyJet was operating one uh, route. We had no incredible... We had no Starbucks. There was a sort of predecessor called Seattle Coffee. We had... There were, <laughs> right. We had, we, had, we had four channels on TV and an occasional blockbuster video. Obviously, there was no wiki. There was no you know, Wi-Fi. I mean... I would love to send those economists in a time machine back 20 years <laughs> yeah. and then get them to go to, to spend one week living in 1998 and then come back and tell us that nothing has got better. You know, uh, th- there has been an immense improvement in living standards, including in wealthy countries what as about a result of... about a wage
0: stagnation for those lower middle class, working class folks in America who didn't vote Democrat for the first time in their life, they voted for Trump?
1: No, sure, uh, uh, because there is always a market for nativism and protectionism in any electorate, there will be here, there is in Britain. but. The, the idea that uh, if their wages have stagnated, the idea that their living standards have stagnated is just not sustainable. The trouble is that the wages are, are, are easy for economists to measure, whereas something like a better cup of coffee, you can't measure, right? <laughs> but, but without any doubt, coffee in the US tastes better than it did 20 years ago. In fact, almost everything has got, you know, the TV programs are better, the, you know, the, the transport is better, uh, 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 the education is better. Um, People are incredibly glum by nature and and, and nostalgic. And you will always be able to win votes, as Trump does, by saying life used to be better. Because our our minds are kind of structured... I mean, even in in Eastern Europe, in former communist countries, you have people saying that. Mm. Um, And and I I say to, to conservative Politicians from those, how can anyone think that life was better in Jaruzelski's Poland? And of course the answer is, they don't really miss Jaruzelski, right? They don't miss uh, the police state and the poverty and the shortages. They miss being 17 again, and who doesn't? You know, they, they remember the, the intensity of their first adolescent crush. They remember the, 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 the bright primary colors that we live in. And of course, that, that you know, so nostalgia is always a, a potent electoral force but if you measure it rationally and if you if you quantify how people live, there is just no yeah, question just a quick qu- Sorry,
0: Nick, just a quick one, though, just to inverse that. Uh, Harold Macmillan, we've never had it mm. so good. That didn't really help him. Malcolm Turnbull, I uh, remember in the lead-up to the 2016 election, sure. saying there's never been a better time to be an Australian. So that doesn't help politically.
1: No, uh, even though it was unquestionably true. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, there has a, the, 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 the Australia has been growing faster than since the gold rush. I mean, you know... And by the way, I'd make this point uh, generally to all of you because I know at conservative gatherings the world over... People are gloomy about their own country and how socialist the government is and how nothing works and so on. I, I, I promise you, my friends, most of the world would swap their problems for yours. Right? Australia has had, <laughs> you know, 27 yeah. years of growth. It is, a, it is a free yep. You know, the, 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 this is a, this is a country that people would would, would gladly come to and live in. Um, uh, but of course, it's it's so easy to focus on the few things that are going wrong and, and to get angry about them because that's how we're programmed. You know, we're, we're, we we. We evolved in dangerous Pleistocene savannas where pessimism was a, a good rule of thumb and a handy survival tool. But that's not the world we're living in now.
2: I, I know uh, you, you are a, a, a good fan, a great fan of Tony Abbott's, uh, yeah. and, uh, uh, which has become somewhat unfashionable in this country in recent years. But <laughs> <that, that laughs> I, I count yeah. myself in that in that small, yeah. in a small but important club. Look, I wonder, one of the things, we were with John Roskam yesterday at the IPA, and, and the IPA have made a big deal over 18C, crucially important, as Thomas raised this evening, freedom of speech. Uh, and Tony Abbott was seen to have failed on that in not breaking the rules. But I wonder whether he actually achieved a lot more with a much more important freedom, and that is freedom of exchange, freedom of trade. I mean, he made big steps forward in that. Would you agree yes. that, that in, in the end, freedom of trade and freedom of uh, a free economy? Yes. Without you that, you haven't got anything. If you had to
1: pick one or the other, there is no question that Tony Abbott made the more important call. So, uh, of course, I, I don't want any restrictions on free speech. You, you just heard that. But if you look at Tony Abbott's legacy, uh, the free trade agreements with China, with Japan, with South Korea, and... As important, the the completion of the economic reforms here, the the ending of subsidies, the ending of trade union-driven special bleeding and and special privileging, in other words, the elevation of the, the, the far more numerous consumers over the politically connected producers, that was an extraordinary achievement. And if you had to choose between someone who delivered that and someone who delivered free speech, I wouldn't
0: hesitate for a moment. Uh, Brexit. Uh, former Prime Minister Tony Blair and former Conservative Prime Minister John Major are, among others, calling for a second referendum on Brexit. Is that really conceivable?
1: Well, I suppose it has to be conceivable, but it is a- an extraordinary situation if you think about it, because what they're all saying is we need another referendum when by definition, they are people who don't accept the result of referendums, otherwise they wouldn't be here. So they're in this absolutely amazing position of saying, well, yeah, but this time we really promise to accept the result. We know we said that before, but this time we really... Well, I mean, unless it goes leave again. But then then we really would, after that, you know, I mean, what, how, how far are we going to take this? Make it best of five, you know? <laughs>
2: there'll, be, there'll be another book in it for you, though. Know, right? yeah, there'll be another you book get, in why, it. You know. Why, why yeah, vote leave again? Yeah. In fact, write. what
1: we could do is make it like the test, make it a regular, uh, uh, you know, engagement, and we, I could get a book out of it each time. I mean, so, the, you know, there is, it, it is difficult to see that working because voters are... But isn't there a great
0: concern that Britain might pull out of Brussels without a deal with Brussels? You've got the Financial Times, among others, saying that we've got announcements from Airbus, Jaguar, Land Rover, Philips, among other companies. Uh, They say they'll scale back investments in Britain absent a deal replicating the current trade relationship with Brussels. That's why there's an appetite Mm. for a new referendum, right? Right. There's not really
1: an appetite for a new referendum. I mean, if the, if the opinion polls are to be believed, it is a quite minority but It's called pursuit. the People's
0: Referendum, isn't it? Yes, which makes
1: you wonder what the last one was. <laughs> vote, you know, was, was, that, was that a Penguin's vote? But, yeah, there is a move for a second referendum. I think it is unlikely to succeed. What I'm much more worried about is that Brexit will happen, but then so many constraints will be placed on it that we would have been better off either staying or leaving completely than ending up with the worst of all worlds, where we lose our veto but still have to accept EU constraints. And the, the, the one that worries me most is staying in the customs union, in other words, within the EU's tariff walls. It's important to understand that the, the EU is not a free trade area. Uh, in the way that NAFTA or ASEAN uh, are free trade areas. Mm. It's a customs union, which is something else completely. It, it, it means that only Brussels gets to do trade policy on behalf of all 28 member states. Right? So if we left, and, and therefore lost any voice over what that trade policy should be, but were still bound by it, so that the EU would carry on saying, you know, you're not allowed to buy a delicious Australian beef because it contains too many growth hormones and so, to, to, to give you a, an actual example, uh, that would be a worse Position than we are in now, and you know I I am not a I'm I've never been that hard line since the results came in. It was a 52-48 uh, um, result, so I said, look, you know, we're all going to have to compromise on this. That that's a narrow mandate. You leave, but you leave in a moderate way, in a gradual way. You try and and, and listen to, to what the 48% wanted. You try and address as many of their concerns as, as possible, and try and come out with a system an eventual uh, outcome where, yeah, we're we're outside the EU, we're sovereign again, we're making our own laws, but we retain some of the institutional framework we had before, and and we we carry on with an exceptionally close relationship. That seemed to me a fair interpretation of a very narrow result. But what we're going to end up with is not uh, staying close to or in parts of the single market while leaving the political institutions. That would have being a fair compromise, we're going to end up really in the worst of all situations where you've left the single market but stayed in the customs union. And that, I mean, no country in the world would countenance doing that, giving Brussels 100% of their control of their trade with 0% input. I mean, it's a completely intolerable situation.
0: Yes. um, How would you respond to the argument that um, if indeed Jeremy Corbyn, the socialist leader of the Labour Party, wins office, which is entirely conceivable, and Britain leaves the European Union, Corbyn and the socialists in his cabinet would then be free to put in place the kind of socialism that Brussels, even Brussels shuns. Aren't these the unintended consequences of what you've been championing?
1: I mean, Corbyn, I think, probably voted leave privately, although he claims not to have done, but look at his expression as he came out of the polling station. And of course, he, he posed a common market in the mid on thing. exactly those grounds, exactly. on exactly the grounds that you just said, Tom. He, he, he thinks it would prevent the achievement of socialism in one country. And so, yes, it is theoretically possible. You know, Brexit on its own doesn't add a farthing to our national wealth. Brexit simply removes constraints. It allows us to make different choices and how we make those choices will determine whether we succeed uh, and, and whether we become a kind of Singapore or whether we become a Venezuela under, under Corbyn or somewhere in between the two. But you know what? I would rather live in a democratic country where I will sometimes lose the vote mm. than live in a country where people are not allowed to choose because they're not trusted to make the right decisions. And I believe with Keith Joseph, who is Margaret Thatcher's guru, he used to say, if you give people more responsibility They behave more responsibly. And I hope that one consequence of Brexit, of being on our own, of having to make our own decisions in a way that you or any other country would take for granted, the ability to hire and fire our lawmakers will make us that much more responsible and will make us understand that we have to look to ourselves in order to prosper in the world.